This is Iron Sports, and we're welcome to bring in Jeff Perlman, author of the book Showtime and many, many other books. We just had him on a few months ago about his Bo Jackson's book, and he's actually working on a book on Tubac Shakur, so can't wait for that to come out. But Jeff, we brought you on today to talk about winning time. First three episodes are out on HBO, and thanks for coming in. And we had you, I think, a year ago talking about the first season, and this is now the second season. This is indeed the second season, and thank you for... Uh Hopefully, I'll come back for the 12th season. <laughs> well, I watched all three episodes last night, and I'll tell you what, this is, I, I criticize sports movies and everything. This is the best I've ever seen it. It's the best acting, the casting, the story, of course, is perfect, direction, production, everything about it. It is tremendous. I just, it's, I had such high expectations going to season two, and it's exceeded those expectations. I feel like you, uh, you're raving about the show, but you have not seen the basketball seeds clearly in the Michael J. Fox 1984 classic Teen Wolf, <laughs> in which in which he doesn't know how to dribble or shoot, but he's very real in not being good at basketball. So I hope by comparison we hold up to Teen Wolf. I the, appreciate it. <laughs> well, getting back to an old movie, the, um, the best scene that you've had in the first three episodes was that my favorite scene in almost any movies is in Empire Strikes Back when uh, Lando Carlisian was in the Cloud City and taking Han Solo and Princess Leia and saying, I think I made a deal with the Empire that will keep the Empire out of uh, you know our business for the time being. And then they walk in the room and they're sitting as Darth Vader. And it's like in the movie last night, to the show last night, Norm Nixon's walking in and Jerry Buss is like, I think I've got this all settled. Thanks for coming to the house. And Norm is so excited. He walks to the house and there at this big buffet feast table is Magic Johnson standing right there. So I think that was. Yeah, that is a great, that is a great scene. I actually thought you were going to say my two favorite scenes from last night. um, Episode three. Number one is um, Larry Bird playing in jeans at Indiana State his first time and lighting everybody up. And then uh, Jim Jones. Uh, being traded to Washington and exploding in the Lakers front office. I thought were both really amazing, amazing and true to life scenes. Uh, uh, that is just a tremendous, the, the Larry Bird casting is tremendous. And the idea that he walked in and that story is true, that he was he not only with jeans, with, with boots, he had boots and yeah. jeans on, he's playing in the players are playing and he scored like what, 50 points in, in just a practice game. Uh, yeah. Talk about a little what the Lakers did in terms of, we ended season one, the Lakers had won the, ch- the championship, they're the champions, but how Boston then responded to the fact that the Lakers are champions. Boston didn't even make the finals that year. And what uh, Red Auerbach, you sort of got a hint in the in the in the first episode what the Boston had done uh, to match the Lakers winning the title. Well, I mean, the greatest to me, one of the greatest off seasons in basketball history would be Red Auerbach trading with Golden State the rights to the pick that wound up being Joe Barry Carroll, who certainly was an OK NBA player, and he got their you know backup center Robert Parrish, and they drafted Kevin McHale with the pick, and you know Robert Pe- Parrish McHale Bird became the you know centerpiece of the Celtics dynasty in a lot of ways. So it was kind of brilliant. And, uh, you know, the Lakers didn't match that. The Lakers won the championship, kind of sat back on their heels a little bit. And then Boston came along and just o- overtook the league that year, 84. And then we talk about in the taining, the first step scene, the first episode, right? I guess the first episode talks about the 80s training camp and title-itis. Uh, suddenly now Magic has won a, a championship in college for Michigan State in 79. Now he wins the world championship as the MVP in 80. And now you have the dynamic of Magic and Kareem battling in terms of who's the star really on this team. And now you're, you know, because like, remember when Kobe and Shaq, and you wrote the book about those Lakers also, Kobe had not won a, an NCAA 
NCAA title. He had not won as his first year an, an NBA title, but that had what Magic had. And so I think he was looking more for Kareem to defer to him, and that was sort of the battle between those two. Yeah, and I wouldn't say Kareem saw it as a battle. Um, I think Magic saw it as, you know, it was his team and he was a young player and, you know, young buck and this is my team. And Kareem was like kind of indifferently bemused by it all. Um, you know, it's funny. In my household, my wife, Catherine Perlman, she's a very big Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fan and has been for years. And she maintains that Kareem is the greatest player ever played. And what bothers her a little bit is just she thinks Magic Johnson's audacity. And I'm always like, listen, girl, the truth of the matter is Magic came along and he transformed the league. And she's always arguing for Kareem, and I'm always arguing for Magic. <laughs> so it's kind of a household phenomenon, actually. So amidst that dynamic of Kareem, this is so, so great. I mean, it's almost like it's fiction, but it's actually real. And your book, Showtime, people should read Showtime along with watching the, the series. But is the Norm Nixon dynamic. Norm Nixon had been there for two years, was a star point guard, and Magic comes in. And now this sort of, this becoming the training camp of 80, it seems like they now are starting to have some friction between Magic and Norm Nixon about who's going to have the ball and those type of things. Yeah, well, Norm Nixon was one of the best point guards in the NBA when Magic was drafted. And they bring in a point guard. And you're always going to feel threatened. I mean, that's sports. When they bring someone along to take your place or challenge your job or whatever. And Nixon was a pretty cocky guy. I just want to note, by the way, the actor who plays Norm Nixon is Devon Nixon, Norm Nixon, Norm Nixon's actual son, which is a really nice touch. And he's, he's an exceptional actor. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Norm didn't like it. He didn't like Magic coming along. You don't know one wants to be replaced in the NBA, and you're the centerpiece in your L.A., and your, his nickname was Savoir Faire, and he was super snazzy and cool and L.A. chic and dating Debbie Allen. And all of a sudden, this guy comes along, and he's getting the endorsements, and he's a good-looking guy, and the smile, and 7-Up and Buick. So it, there definitely was a lot of conflict. And then the other uh, protagonist or antagonist, or however you want to say, is Paul Westhead, the coach. And I liked you the quote. I don't know if it was from the book or from the movie. I, I wrote my notes down. It said, Jamal Wilkes said, when Paul became a genius, that's when the trouble started. And we've had Paul on our show, so he's been great on the show. But it seemed like he took much more. He replaced Jack McKinney in the, in the 79-80 season. And then now he is the head coach and he has total control, it seems like, of everything. And now he's implementing his system, not Jack McKinney systems. So here's the thing I will say. It's funny because like with the show, you hear a lot of criticism from like Jerry West. Oh, Jerry West was mad or Magic was upset. And the one guy who I think we do maybe a slight disservice might be too strong, but is Paul Westhead. Paul Westhead was a great coach. Paul Westhead went on to have a lot of success at Loyola Marymount, coached women's basketball really well at Oregon. My guy was a great coach. But when he took over and he won a championship, he came back the next year sort of determined to switch things up and put his own imprint on. And as a result of that, he really screwed up the team in a lot of ways. So he, it wasn't wise. But if, if anyone comes away from the show and thinks, wow, Paul Weston was an idiot, he really wasn't. He was actually a very smart basketball coach. And then the season started out pretty good. I mean, the showtime, everything was working great. And then Magic's injury, and it's similar. I mean, Magic, uh, Michael Jordan had an injury in his second year also in terms of with the, with the knee injury. that, And he was out like almost three months. And that's sort of the team went into different dynamics with Magic out of the lineup for the period of time. And they showed Magic just sitting at his house. And you said in the book, he watched like every single TV. <laughs> he was like 12 hours a day of watching television. He was by himself. And all those dynamics about Magic being out in the whole middle part of the season. Well, you also have to remember back then, it wasn't like now, where they immediately send you a throw into rehab and they have you work with this guy and that guy. It was the pretty dark ages of sports medicine. 
So it was basically go home, get some rest, ice your knee, watch a lot of TV, whatever you do. <laughs> and that's basically what it was for Magic. His rehab was staying home, staying off the knee, resting. Now he'd be nowadays he'd be in the team facility every day. He'd be in the cryo freeze chamber. He'd be doing this. He'd be doing that. It's just a different era. So he was home. The Lakers played well without him. Then he has to come back, and it's kind of a, an awkward readjustment. Yeah, and then you mentioned in the book, and this is when I think some of the friction between there's so many different characters in this, the whole Pat Riley, Paul Westhead friction, where Pat Riley was working with Magic on the side, trying to get him's confidence back, and Westhead didn't know about some of these training sessions, even though I find it surprised that he wouldn't know those. But it was that aspect of Pat Riley and Paul Westhead, sort of how are we going to integrate Magic back into the lineup after we had done fairly well without him out of the lineup? Um, yeah. Also, I will say there is some creative license. Like, I agree with you. I, Riley certainly wasn't going under. Like, he wasn't undermining his coach. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, what, what happened is Riley was one of them. Like, Riley was a blue-collar, gritty, former Laker, Schenectady, New York kid, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and Westhead was a college, former college coach, kind of part of the system, blah, 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 blah. So it was just like a weird marriage of coaches. And the book mentions, well, the movie talks about the David Thompson trade. You didn't really mention about the potentially trading Norm Nixon. Now, there was trade rumors for Norm Nixon all the time. People kept thinking they were going to trade him. I didn't know anything in the book you highlighted that. But it definitely caused the dynamic of the team is that Norm Nixon could be traded and and the people, Jerry West, once once Norm traded for David Thompson and that aspect. Uh, Yeah. I mean, actually, the David Thompson trade was legit. And... um I think it would have been a, a very bad trade for the Lakers. Years later, it's funny. Years later, they almost traded James Worthy for Mark Aguirre. <laughs> and I think that would have been a disaster. Even though, again, Aguirre and David Thompson were both big scoring like superstars. They weren't right for the system. So I actually think Westhead was correct in his assessment that we don't want to trade Norm Nixon. Um, and later, when they traded Norm Nixon to the Clippers, they wound up getting Byron Scott in the deal, the draft rights of Byron Scott. So ultimately, not making the trade uh, paid off. And then back in the day, in those days, they had three first of the three-round series, which is pretty exciting. When we watch these playoffs and they go for two and a half months, I think a lot of people are saying, can we just go back to the three-game you know, the three round, the three game series? Uh, but they, Houston was 40 and 42, did not have a good year, and they were upset. The Lakers were upset in the first game, and the second game they won. But in the third game is one of the most famous games of all time, where Magic had the ball at the end of the game and shot an air ball, and the team lost, and they had a huge upset to the Lakers. I just think the basketball in the show is really good. I got to say, like it got me thinking about how they depicted that game, and the just everything about the shooting of the show is so good, and they really nailed that. And that was a uh, that was an insane loss. Like Houston was terrible. The coach was Dell Harris. They had Moses Malone and a bunch of spare parts. The Lakers had no business losing to them. But the readjustment of Magic back, uh, the awkwardness, the tuning out of Westhead, everything just combined and. They kind of, you know, crap the bed. <laughs> and then you know, I actually watched the video of it. They, I went on YouTube and watched it, and they really did get it right, how everyone was open, and Magic just took this bad shot. And he was also yeah. two for 14 for the game. And, the, and then the, the Celtics went on to win the championship. 
And then mm-hmm. before we start for the next season, and they talk about, you've spent, the movie talks about the family dynamics, the whole Jeannie bus, uh, Jimmy and Johnny, her brothers, and how they were all, you know, Jeannie's doing all the work and everything, and Jimmy and Johnny are the playboys and not really focused. And, and they take it to the extreme, they're Monopoly games. But I do enjoy watching that, you know, aspect of the game and seeing, you know, you would almost think that Jeannie is behind this entire thing because it makes her look like she's the brains behind everything. Well, Jeannie was the smart child of Jerry Buss. His sons are idiots. Like, they've always been known as idiots. In California out here, they can't walk around with their names. I mean, people just really do not respect them. And Jeannie was always business savvy. Jeannie was always a step ahead. She knew what she was doing. She ran the L.A. Strings, a women's tennis team, very well. So I think it, it does depict well sort of the subtle rise of Jeannie and the idiocy of her brothers. And then we start the third year. His third year, actually, the the season after they lost the, the didn't make the loss in the first round. And again, Westhead is now asserting, you know, I said asserting control, um, made decisions on signing Mitch Kupchak because he wanted Kupchak to be to be there. You actually in the book talked about how every other you interviewed all these executives and they all said it was the stupidest thing they ever heard about. And they drafted Mike McGee, all these different mistakes. But Westhead was then decided, I'm going to put my system in place. I'm going to do it my way. And then the team rebelled against that. And there was that friction between Westhead and uh, the rest of the team on the system, which is more of a it's hard to say it's a more fast pace but it was more running to a spot and shooting rather than the free-flowing of Nixon and Magic just running there and making decisions and passing. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes in the show is when Paul Westhead says, I call it the system. And Jim Soans, played by uh, the great Newton Mayenge, says, the system? That's your name? That ain't sexy. <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, it was a bad idea. It was a very high school... I don't know, it was like Paul Westhead getting ahead of himself and thinking here's this brilliant idea and it's really going to work because it's brilliant. So it'll work. And it was terrible. None of the players liked it. He, uh, he just lost a lot of respect because they had won a title playing a certain style and he went away from it. And all the players knew it was just a dumb idea. So, uh, that really was the beginning of the end when he really, the beginning of the end is when he instituted the system. Yeah. And then, we're not. We're jumping. I'm not going to go too far into because I want people to watch the show. You know, it's one of those things where even though it's truth, but and I watched all this, but it's so long ago that you really don't know all the details of everything. So it is fun. But you did. I'll touch in because I guess this will be the next. I saw the the previews for the next episode for Sunday. Is the whole demise of Westhead and when Magic started challenging Westhead in that third year and sort of pushing it, and then it came to all of a head where Magic wasn't listening to him and going to the games and and literally for. Forcing Westhead to get fired. Correct. And I don't want to give away too much in the show, but I can tell you in episode six, a certain very handsome, very smart, very dashing sports writer gets a cameo as a reporter at a press conference where Paul Westhead is no longer the coach. So I don't want to give away too much, but that smart, dashing, handsome, cool, badass might be on the phone with you right now. <laughs> it took how many episodes for you to get into this? I mean, it's your brainchild. I, I was thinking you, maybe you were hit like you were an extra in like the third or fourth episode would have been good. But Well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me tell you, in episode one, I did have a couple of lines, but they got cut. But the problem is my scene, my scene-stealing wife played Donna, the Chicago Bulls receptionist, and she actually got her laugh. You can hear her laugh in season one in the pilot and I was supposed to be in that episode too and all you see is my back so um, this is my big acting debut really on a national stage I think it's really going to thrust me 
I wouldn't be surprised if I get an Emmy nod for best supporting, 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 supporting <laughs> reporter at a press conference. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And it, you know what I was surprised when you read about this? And I guess when you read your book and everything is that that magic got pillared by everyone. I mean, it was like people yeah. realized that Westhead wasn't working. The players didn't like it. And and I loved how magic was like, all the guys think this. And he was like, you know, but it's really him. But, but you know, Nixon hated Westhead and, and the other players didn't like Westhead. But magic got all the blame for, for getting Westhead fired when it was really the, the whole team really got him fired. Except for I me, mean, Kareem was the only one to call him after he was fired. Kareem was the only player to give him a call and, and see how he was doing. Yeah, I don't think he gets fired if Magic doesn't lead the charge, though. And also, they were in the middle of a five-game winning streak when they fired Paul Westhead, which has to be the only time in history before or since that a coach leading a team in a five-game winning streak gets fired. So, I mean, that Magic really was, in a lot of ways, the first coach killer. It's become much more common in the common era, in modern era, as players get more power. But really, he was the first guy who had enough swag to uh, get a coach fired. And it was kind of on him. The other guys didn't like him, but Magic was the one who stepped up and sort of demanded if this guy doesn't go, I kind of want to leave. You know, but they mentioned that his relationship with Jerry Buss, but the other players had good relationships with him. I think you said Ron Carter said about Buss, he's the only owner in the history of sports that said, where are you guys, after the game, he comes to the locker room and he goes, where are you guys going and can I come along? (laughs) So it's like the other players did hang out with him at the different, the Playboy Mansions and all the other things. And it wasn't just Magic, but Magic more than probably the other players. There weren't that many owners in the NBA before or since who have, you know, enjoyed dating 19-year-old women and bringing them back to his mansion and, you know, catering them with alcohol and booze and whatever and blah, blah, blah. It's not a, uh, in hindsight, it's a pretty dark mark on Jerry Buss. He's kind of a gross guy in a lot of ways. But if you're a 20-year-old Magic Johnson, you're like, this is my owner? Oh, this is the owner of the team? This is kind of cool. So it just it works for the times, I guess, in a weird way. <laughs> And then uh, we're not going to give anything away. I'm going to stop at this last question. But I love in your book, the press conference, and I hope the the, the uh, series shows this, is that the day after Westhead's fired and then Jerry Buss has a press conference and they go, who's the coach? And he couldn't, I mean, maybe the his, first time in the history of sports, he couldn't say who the coach was, that there was going to be an offensive captain and a defensive captain with Riley and Jerry West. That is literally the scene I'm in. And one of my lines is, who's the coach? So you just stole my line on I'm sorry. on your show, which is really hurtful because I really practiced that line about you know for three days. So uh, yeah, correct. The press conference is one of the best scenes. I'm going to go out and say not because I'm in it. The press conference is one of the best scenes in the history of sports television. It is so preposterously good. My wife is standing next to me, nodding. She agrees. It's one of the best scenes ever. The whole episode is so. Re- episode six, starring Jeff from an Emmy Award nominated uh, extra. Is one of the best episodes you'll ever see on TV. <laughs> well, and it's like Jerry West said, they asked him, are you the coach? He goes, no. And they asked Riley if he's the coach. He goes, no. And that's like, mm-hmm. nobody, you don't, you have a team now that is, you know, one year away from winning the championship with all these superstars and there's no coach and nobody wants to be the coach or nobody. And you look at Riley today and sort of how he runs the heat. And it's like, how could it be part of this entire like mess of like that was, but it was, it's the, from the book perspective, when you wrote in the book and it was just, it's a, it is surreal, really. Correct. I mean, it was a quaint day of the NBA when you threw up a backdrop and held a press conference and kind of just wing it and hope it works out and everyone's smoking cigarettes and all. At the end, we're going to have hoagies in the back. Like, it was just a different era. So, you know, nowadays you have a million publicists who would have stood in the way and said, make sure you hit your talking points. They didn't do that back then. 
And then it's sort of, it. then we're, you know, it really forged Pat Riley in terms of what we see Pat Riley. I mean, I go to the Heat games now and he's sitting there with Alonzo Mourning and Shaq comes over there and he's truly the godfather of all godfathers. But remember, you know, like when you do the flashbacks in The Godfather, the godfather wasn't always, you know, he's Vito Corleone in the beginning in, the, in, in Godfather 2. And you see him, you know, making those, uh, you know, taking control of the team and running the team that, right, you know, meeting with Magic, saying we're going to go back to McKinney's offense, those type of things. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm one of the seven remaining males under over the age of 50 in America to have never seen The Godfather. But I do know your reference, and you are correct. And uh, yeah, he was just a guy. He was a has-been former player looking for a place to go in life. And this opportunity came up, and he happened to be a naturally gifted basketball coach. So, and there's only... Am I wrong? I, I'm trying to, there's only going to be seven of these episodes. I mean, I've seen three. There's three are out right now if you just go on and, and binge watch it within in a three-hour period. But is there only going to be seven for the second season? Uh, correct. There's seven episodes for season two. Oh, my God. These should be more. I don't want to, I mean, Suits. Bro, suits had, who are you talking to, man? <laughs> I, I want 20 episodes per season because I get paid per episode and because I love the show. I, I know there's 18 episodes. Every Suits has 18 episodes. People are trying to binge watch Suits. It's like a, a life work right now to watch Suits. But what's tremendous. And then but before we leave, I just want to say is what um, what about your Tupac book that you're working on? I, I, I follow you on Instagram and Twitter and everything. And, and you are talking about that constantly. So I'm interested in that book. I mean, I'm all about Tupac. And my wife, again, who's standing next to me, never wants to hear another Tupac story because I tell them to her all. I am... Uh, I just always wanted to write this book and I waited and waited and waited. And you know, you get pigeonholed a little bit as a sports writer and your sports book sells. So we need another sports book. And I finally said, I really want to do a Tupac book. And Harper Collins was nice enough to give me the opportunity. And I'm about 400 interviews in and I'm losing my mind. And I can tell you, I have thug life tattooed across my stomach. And right now, as we speak, I'm smoking a big ass blunt and drinking a brew. No, no. Is there any other, besides the Tupac, which I'll probably make a movie, but is there any one of your other books that we could do this with in terms of, I think the second Lakers here, the second book about the Lakers would be perfect with Shaq and Kobe. But have you well, been. Well, HBO has a right to it. HBO has a right to the second book. So, um, but, you know, this season, this episode this season has to keep going and the series has to keep going for that to really happen so uh we need viewers i implore your listeners and i'm being serious about this we need viewers like this show is on the fringe of either thriving or being not airing anymore like we need numbers and that's the problem with well with tv in general is you have to get the word out there's a writer strike there's an actor strike it's very hard to get the, the, the buzz and this show has buzz but it, it needs more buzz do you think it, it should have aired? Like, why did you choose to start it in August rather than like during basketball season or the end of basketball season? Was that a conscious decision to do it? Like, I, I was surprised by that. Well, that's a little above my, my pay grade, but I will tell you, I have found with books that it is actually a mistake. Like, when I started in, in writing books, they would always be like, all right, you're writing a book about the 86 Mets. We should have that come out during the World Series. And what you learn over time is that's actually the worst idea because the attention of the World Series gobbles up your book and your book ends up getting no attention. So I think if this book, if this show had come out during the NBA finals, I think the finals would have completely gobbled up um, any attention for it. I, I don't know what to say. My, my big, my big thing is it's really hard to promote a show during a dual strikes, writer strike, actor strike. 
and that's been a real challenge. Because you don't have the actors, but look, we're on five radio stations here in South Florida. I'm saying is I'm I'm very critical. I did not like feel of, of TV of uh, sports books. I didn't like Field of Dreams. I thought it was uh, and I, even Draft Day wasn't that great a movie. And Jerry Maguire, all these are movies. I'm not a big fan of these. But this, the acting, and again, when you mentioned about Norm Nixon's son playing Norm Nixon, when he plays it, it's like you. It's like AI. I mean, it's like you're bringing back Norm Nixon because it's the passion. Like he knows what his father went through, and he plays like that. And it's just such the I, I cannot. The casting is perfect. Magic Johnson, the and Kareem. I can't even say there's no weak cast member. Everyone is great. They play the parts well. The production is great. And John O'Reilly is just tremendous as Jerry yep. Buss. It's, it's, it truly is a work of art when you're watching it. And, and I just would suggest everybody to watch it. So to, to boost your number so we can have more. Because if they stop watching, then you're right. We don't have any more of this. I mean, I, um, I love this show. And the thing I really love, like, this is going to sound kind of corny, but it's really true. Like, I, I'm 51 years old. I've had a nice career in writing. I don't need this show, you know, like it's, it's great. It's a cherry on top of my career, but I don't need it. But like so many of the actors in this show are young. Many of them are black actors who are getting a real shot in an industry that oftentimes does not give that shot. Or they'll have black actors always play the drug dealer or he'll play the homeless guy or, he'll play, you know, like typecasting in Hollywood is very real and very gross. And here's a show that is a celebratory show that has strong characters of all different ilks. And I just think it's a worthwhile show to watch. I really do. And I would say that if I had nothing to do with it, because watching it gives me great pleasure. All right, Jeff. Enjoy your day. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it.